0: Let's uh, turn to the prophecy of Joel and chapter 2. The prophecy of Joel comes after Daniel and Hosea and uh, before the prophecy of Amos. So Daniel, Hosea and then Joel and chapter 2. And uh, after the restoration that God has promised his people, when he will restore to them the years that the locust had eaten, we read uh, these words in verse 28. Verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy... Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Now with God's help, uh, I'd like this morning and tonight as well to bring our studies of this prophet uh, to a close and uh, to do so I think it might be helpful just after a few weeks to very briefly uh, reorientate ourselves. You'll remember that uh, Joel's message was delivered to Judah in the middle of a national disaster. Uh, and that disaster consisted in an invasion, not of people, but of four successive waves of locusts, which had the primary effect of destroying their economy. Although, of course, it affected the worship of God too. And you could argue in many ways that that was the primary uh, effect, effect of it. But nonetheless, their economy was ravaged. Now, Joel was sent in the middle of this prophecy uh, to tell the people that it was not simply a divine providence, just like other providences, but that it was specifically a divine chastisement. In much the same way as the virus sweeping across the developed and materialistic world is a chastisement from God too, not just an ordinary providence, but an extraordinary providence on both the state and the church. Now, of course, each wave of the locusts uh, was worse than the preceding one. And when the people were inclined to think that it was over, and when they would say peace and safety, then another wave would appear and so it's proved with this virus itself. A first wave and a second and then unexpectedly a third with a mutation which has put our leaders into perplexity and into confusion but still no acknowledgement of the Lord's hand, no prayer that he would remove the affliction and no repentance throughout the land. Now, that doesn't mean that nobody has responded to it. And I hope, at least in our own congregation, that you have responded to it. But still, generally speaking, and we sometimes have to speak generally, there has been no acknowledgement, no repentance, and no response. Now, because it was a chastisement from God, uh, the prophet tells the priests, were scattered throughout the land to blow through two trumpets and you'll remember that. The first trumpet was to sound an alarm, to recognize that God was visiting in judgment and that that in itself is a picture of a greater judgment to come. The second trumpet blow was to call the people to repentance and uh, that call constitutes the central part of the prophecy best-known part, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to your Lord, to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. And then you'll remember that the prophet tells them that real repentance will certainly be followed by God's gracious response. He will, first of all, give them deliverance from the chastisement. He will destroy the locusts. And then, secondly, he will give them restoration as a people. And we saw that this restoration was essentially fourfold. He will restore restore their joy in the nation and in the church. They had both lost their joy, just as they have today. He will restore their joy. He will restore their praise. It will be a real heartfelt praise. He will restore their dignity as the people of God. And He will restore their fruitfulness as a people. And as always in the Bible, the fruitfulness of the land here, um, and there's an emphasis on that in the middle part of chapter 2, where the land is renewed and refreshed. That is not just a thing in itself a genuine harvest, but it is also a picture of the fruitfulness of their renewed lives before God, bringing forth the fruit of the Spirit. And the Psalms and other parts of the Bible are full of that. The earth shall yield its fruit. Our God shall blessing send. God shall us bless. Men shall him fear unto earth's utmost end. So the renewal of the earth in corn And wheat and oil is paralleled by the renewal of the people's spiritual lives, bringing forth love, joy, peace, and all the other fruits of the Holy Spirit. So this restoration means that God would actually restore to them the years that the locust had eaten. Now, in a sense, the prophet could have stopped with that. After all, what more do we need? But that that promise of restoration and renewal, what an encouragement it is to personal and corporate repentance. But you'll notice that the prophet is given more to say. And he's given more to say in connection with the future. The, The refreshing that will come from the Spirit of the Lord after they repent will actually be followed. Sometime in the future, we're not told specifically by Joel when... Joel doesn't know. But we're told that this refreshment from the Spirit of God will be followed by a greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which will come, quote, afterwards in verse 28, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And the effect of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is so great that it will actually continue until the great day of the Lord Himself, or the great day itself, until, in other words, the end of the world, when, in verse 30, there will be wonders in the heavens and in the earth, with blood and fire and pillars of smoke, when the sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, these things will precede the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And meanwhile, and we'll see this tonight, it shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this great outpouring of the Spirit um, will be so effectual that it will remain until the sun is turned to darkness the moon into blood, ushering in the great day of the Lord. Now, this period of time, from the outpouring of the Spirit until the day of the Lord, this period of time is called in the Bible, the last days. It's not too long, really, since I looked at this expression with you in some detail, so I I don't want to linger at that just now. The last days, the last days began... Um, or they were begun by christ i should say and they will be ended by christ who is the alpha and the omega he is the beginning and the end he is the originator and perfecter of all things including the originator and perfecter of our faith he initiates the last days and he ends the last days he initiates the last days by pouring out the holy spirit And he closes the last day uh, with the great day of the Lord, the day of his own appearing and the day of his judgment. Now let's look first at the starting point of these last days, which is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In verse 28, let's read it. It shall come to pass afterward, Joel says, that I, God, will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also on my men servants and on my maidservants I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now we don't need to speculate about what this prophecy refers to or when it might happen. We know exactly what it refers to and we know when it happens. We fast forward from Joel's days into the days immediately following Christ's ascension into heaven and his session at the right hand of God. Now these in itself are marvelous events. Of course, the ascension was seen by the apostles as they saw the Lord uh, rising into heaven in the posture of a benediction. We actually looked at that on uh, New Year's Day. Uh, He rose into heaven, blessing them all. Now, the events that followed that are hidden from our view on the earth, except that they are revealed to us in the scriptures. Perhaps one of the clearest references to it is in Psalm 110 itself. As always, the Psalms shed light on these things, where David, with the spirit of prophecy, a thousand years beforehand, he sees this event when the Lord, the Father, says to my Lord, The Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, sit thou at my right hand. That's the alpha point here, the beginning of the last days. Until I make thy foes a stool on which thy feet may stand. That's the omega point of the last days. So from the beginning of the last days to the end, the Lord Jesus Christ sits reigning in heaven with all power, and authority given to him. Now, when he sits there in heaven, that is a rod placed in his hand, that's what Psalm 110 tells us, and the rod is stretched out. This is the rod of his authority and power. So it's not merely functioning there as a symbol of authority, but as a symbol of authority in exercise. The sceptre doesn't rest between his knees. But the scepter is stretched out by his right hand, in other words, he begins to rule. And the first great act of his rule is to send the Holy Spirit in his own name and by his own authority into the world. Now, we find in Acts chapter 2, the apostles and the disciples with them gathered together in one place and waiting for that event. Now, they're not waiting for it passively. The word waiting to us, I suppose, often um, conveys the idea of passivity. But in Scripture, waiting is not passive. I waited for the Lord my God and patiently did bear. But what do you do when you wait? These people are actively, perseveringly waiting for the Lord. They are doing what they can for the Lord. And they are waiting prayerfully for the Lord and that is the most uh, active thing that you can do when you're waiting to pray and what they're praying for is the coming of the Holy Spirit the long promised coming the the coming that we have referred to by Joel here hundreds of years before it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh now the Lord Jesus had told them that the Holy Spirit would arrive shortly. Earlier in his ministry, he told them that the Holy Spirit would be given after his glorification. And here we're told in Acts chapter 1, that uh, when Christ was assembled together with them, just before his ascension, in verse 4 we read this. Now listen carefully to what what the, uh, the evangelist says, to what Luke says. And being assembled together with them, that's with the disciples, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem. Now they had a ministry to fulfill, but they had to stay in Jerusalem and to wait for the promise of the Father. In other words, to wait for the thing that the Father promised, which he said, you have heard from me, I have told you about this. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Notice how they're tying up a blessing upon Israel with the coming of the Holy Spirit. That takes us a little bit into Joel chapter 3, but uh, we'll look at that God willing tonight. But Jesus says to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put or reserved in his own authority. But he says, wait in Jerusalem because you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem first, and in all Judea second, and then in Samaria, and then, he says, to the ends of the earth. And so they gathered in the upper room, and they prayed, and they waited. And then on the day of Pentecost, shortly afterwards, the Holy Spirit arrived. And we read it in these uh, wonderful words of chapter 2, when they were with One accord in one place, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And These tongues revealed themselves in languages, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And Paul, of course, explains what these events mean. Again in verse 14 of Acts 2. Men of Judah, you who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Listen to my words. These people are not drunk. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days that I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Now this coming of the Holy Spirit is a unique coming of the Holy Spirit. We still speak of the Spirit being poured out, and rightfully so. I'll say again something about that tonight. The Holy Spirit can still come. He can still fall upon us. But none of that is to be confused with this. This is a single, unique, outpouring of the Holy Spirit that inaugurates the last days, or indeed you could call it the age or the era of the Holy Spirit. The gospel age, which is characterized by the work of the Spirit of Christ, not just among the Jews, but among the Gentiles also. And in fact, you know, that it would be a mistake when you, when you think of this era as the or this age as the age of the Holy Spirit, we mustn't, of course, separate that from it being the age of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, this coming of the Holy Spirit with manifest signs and wonders and power is actually, according to Peter, it's actually a great sign that the Lord Jesus himself has been raised to heaven and that he now possesses power and authority in heaven and upon the earth. And uh, Peter actually um, stresses that point when he preaches in, uh, at Pentecost. And can't help but notice, by the way, how different Peter is and uh, what a difference the resurrection has made to him. But But what a difference Pentecost has made to him. The filling of the Holy Spirit in his own personal life. Men of Israel, he says, the, the timid, fearful Peter is gone. Listen to these words Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs. In other words, when Jesus at 30 years of age suddenly performed miracles and wonders of, and signs, these were attestations from God that this was the Messiah. In verse 23, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. Now, for you, Peter is saying, essentially, that was the end of the matter. You've got rid of the lawless one. You've got rid of the imposter. You've got rid of the false messiah. But, Peter says, this Jesus whom God raised up, having loosened the pains of death. Why? Because it was not possible that he should be held by it or held in its grip forever. No, he says. He goes on to say in verse 32, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are witnesses. And listen now to what he says. This is the point here. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit or the promised Holy Spirit, he poured out this, this outpouring that's come upon you, the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. He, the Lord Jesus Christ, poured out this spirit which you now see and which you hear Therefore, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified as a nothing, as an impostor; He has made him both Lord and Christ. And this sermon, of course, was accompanied by such power on Pentecost. It was accompanied by the Holy Spirit of God, so much so that when they heard it, they were cut to the heart. Is this not the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Does he not convict first of sin and then righteousness and then judgment? And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? To which Peter responds, repent, repent. Turn, change, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you too shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you, and it's to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So that's the outpouring. In other words, the the coming of the Holy Spirit here is unique. It is the proof of our Lord Jesus Christ's ascension into heaven and of his possessing all power and authority at the right hand of God. The advent of the Spirit was designed to shake the Jewish people, first of all. The one we crucified is actually enthroned in heaven. Now, this really means that what Joel sees here in, verse, in chapter 2 and verse 28 is the event known as Pentecost. And you'll notice that the, the coming of the Holy Spirit here is marked out in a very special way. Um, it's an outpouring that is, first of all, we could say abundant. It's, it's not just an ordinary refreshment. A refreshment of God's heritage. It's not an ordinary quickening, but there's a special abundance to it. It's a unique outpouring. Just as God, uh, on the, when the day of the Lord comes, God will pour out his fury. He will do that on the last days. We have in the Revelation, we have the seven vials of God's wrath, which are full of God's wrath, and which he pours out one after another. It's as though well, it's not as though I mean it's actually so the The fury of God is a pent-up thing. There is a sense in which God desires to show his wrath and indignation against sin, but he holds it back for his own good purposes. He holds it back in this world. He is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. but it's a pent-up fury, it's straining at its bounds, straining to be unleashed. And when God pours it out, it breaks like a dam. Well, so it is with the outpouring of the Spirit. This, this is something God has long desired to do. Isaiah, in, in chapter uh, 42 of this prophecy, what was it, 40? I think it's 42. In chapter 42, he um, he speaks of God being, pregnant with this promise. And uh, like a woman desiring to bring your child into this world, so God longs to bring this promise into the world. And when he pours out the Spirit, it's like something pent up in God for a long time. He longs for the Spirit to be poured out, not just upon the Jew, but upon the Gentile. Not just upon the promised land, but to the ends of the earth. So this is an outpouring like no other. The Holy Spirit gushed out that day at Pentecost. Just as the water gushed out from the rock when Moses struck it, something we looked at not that long ago, something which Christ compared really to the Holy Spirit's coming, well, so the Spirit is poured out abundantly. You'll notice that it's also poured out very evidently. In other words, when the Spirit comes, he comes with signs and with wonders. Let's say that these are there to announce his coming. If you ask what the real purpose of the Spirit's coming is, it's not to uh, speak in languages or uh, the sound of a wind or a visible sign of tongues. It is to convert people. Uh, 3,000 people were turned to God that day at Pentecost. But nonetheless, there is no denying that there were accompanying signs and wonders. Their ears heard the sound of a rushing mighty wind. And suddenly their eyes saw visibly tongues of fire falling down and resting upon the people. And uh, that meant that there wasn't just converting power that day, which is a wonderful thing. And How much we long and pray to see it. At least I hope we do. 3,000 souls born in the one day. But there was also power to heal. There was also the power to speak languages belonging to far distant peoples and countries that the apostles had never heard. They were certainly able to speak in these foreign languages. We're told later that they were able to pick up serpents without being harmed. They were able to prophesy, speaking directly from God. And with all these things, God isn't just sending the Spirit, but God is announcing the arrival of the Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose work ultimately is to convert the world. As I said a minute ago, that is his primary ministry, not the signs, not the wonders, but the changed lives of the 3,000, which rapidly became 5,000 and 50,000 and millions and billions of people. so the outpouring is abundant and evident. And then again, it's universal. I pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now we sometimes have to watch uh, that word "all. What kind of inclusivity is it really? Referring to, I think it's maybe best described like this, the all flesh doesn't mean all without exception, but all without exclusion. In other words, all kinds of people from all kinds of places are to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. For example, regarding sex, we are told that the gift of prophecy will fall upon all, Upon God's men' servants and upon his maidservants, upon his sons, the people's sons and the people's daughters, now that may raise questions in people's minds as to uh, the role of women in um, in speaking the things of God and so on. and I'll come to that very shortly. I said that I would resume the study uh, on First Corinthians. I'll do that in the next few weeks by God's grace, but there is no doubt that the spirit of prophecy fell upon men and women. Philip the evangelist himself, for example, one of the first deacons who then became an evangelist, were told he had four daughters who prophesied. So the Spirit of God fell in prophecy upon men and women. They received special words from God himself. Again, the the age barrier itself was broken. The, The Holy Spirit was to fall, in signs and wonders, on young men and on old men. And again, regarding status. Um, we're told that in verse 18, on the men's servants and on the maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. So the signs and the wonders were to touch them too. Um, slave and free. I don't think there's any mention anywhere in the Old Testament of our. Uh, of a slave uh, being uh, touched like this by the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but there is no mention of it. But here there is a a getting rid of all these categories of status. They're not there. It's not just the wise and the mighty and the noble who receive the Spirit of God, but the male servants and the female servants, they shall prophesy in those days. And, of course, it's not just the Jew, but also the Gentile. The Holy Spirit will not just come to those in Jerusalem, but it'll fall on those in Judea. He will fall on those in Samaria, and then he will fall on people to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit will accompany his worldwide ministry. Now, these signs and wonders are announcing his arrival. The rule of King Jesus, ruling from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. This, in other words, is the birthday of the New Testament. Church. It's the real birthday. The advent of the Holy Spirit is the real birthday of the New Testament Church. And um, in other words, with the apostles in her government and ruled by the Holy Spirit. And Psalm 110 really speaks about how wonderful that day will be. I referred to this Psalm a moment ago and we sang it, but it, it opens. I, I I quoted these words, we sang them, the Lord saying to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thy foes a stool whereon thy feet may stand. So that's the beginning of the last days to the end of the last days. And during these last days, the Lord shall out of Sion send the rod of his great power. Now there again is the inauguration. He's stretching out this gospel rod. And in the midst of all thine enemies, be thou the governor. That's the situation today. The enemies of God are very noisy they're exceptionally noisy, and in their own way, they're powerful too, because the prince of darkness who is behind them is a real power. But he's still the governor. In the midst of all thine enemies, be thou the governor. Now, verse 3 of the psalm, listen to what happens here. In the morning of the last days, when when the Lord Jesus stretches out his hand and sends the Holy Spirit, what happens? verse 3, a willing people in thy day of power shall come to thee. That reminds us that the, the day that was inaugurated there at Pentecost, the day of the Holy Spirit is a day of power. It's a day of the Spirit's power, yes, but it's a day of Christ's power. And what does it produce? A willing people. This rod touches their hearts and they become willing. And what are they like? Well, they're like young people. In holy beauties, from the womb of the morning, your youth will be like the Jew. Some people refer the youth here to the Messiah's own youth, which is an interesting thought, but I don't think it's the thought of the psalm at all. I think youth here is young people. And what happens here is that um, the womb of the morning, the morning is the beginning of the gospel age, you see. And right from its womb, um, arrayed in holiness, will be the Lord's people, ever young, ever fresh, ever full of the Holy Spirit, and ever to do his work. What a beautiful morning that is. Now, the whole of the last days might not quite continue in exactly the same way, but that's how they begin. And this will characterise them, really, in the main. A willing people will come to you, arrayed in holy garments from the womb of that Pentecost morning. And they will be as fresh and as as living and as full of promise as the dew on the ground in the morning. That is what the Advent or the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, accomplishes. Now, you'll notice that Joel moves. Well, you might not notice it for a very obvious reason, and that's that it's not obvious. But what Joel does is he actually moves suddenly from the beginning of the last days to the end. Now, we can't see that transition happening. It's very abrupt between verses 29 and 30. In verse 29, he says that on his men servants and on his maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And then we have a change. I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth blood, fire, pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome or terrible, terrifying day of the Lord. Now, like I say, we can't tell immediately that there's been a transition here from one time period to another. But it's not unusual to find that transition in the prophets. And if you look closely, you'll find the indicators that the transition has happened. I say it's not unusual in the prophets because when the prophets are looking forward from a distance, they see things in the future close together which in fact are really far apart. Now The the illustration I first came across illustrating this is, I think, still the best one. It's the simplest one anyway, as far as I can see. Um, When you're walking towards two hills from a distance and one hill is behind the other, you feel that these two hills are very, very close to each other simply because you're far away from both of them. They're both in the distance. But when you arrive at the first one, and you climb it, and you reach the top, suddenly you see that there's actually a vast distance before the next hill. Now, that's exactly how the prophets write. In fact, close as he is to Christ, even John the Baptist is like this. It works like this. Uh, Joel sees the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the great and terrifying day of the Lord as more or less together. He doesn't understand that there are thousands of years between them. Thousands of years between the outpouring of the Spirit and the day of the Lord. And this day of the Lord here in verse 31, when he sees the sun will be turned to darkness and to the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awful day of the Lord, is without doubt the day of judgment. In the Bible, consistently, the day of the Lord is described as the day of judgment. And in fact, the expression day of the Lord appears three times in the prophecy of Joel itself. And it's related to the locusts. In other words, the locusts themselves were a foretaste of the day of the Lord. That, that's the that's the warning that's involved there. Be alarmed. If you don't respond to the locusts, then... How will you respond to the Lord's day when it comes? The day of his wrath and the day of his anger. Here is just a small picture of what it involves. And you'll notice that this day, the day of the Lord's wrath, also has signs coming before it. In verse 30, I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. Blood. And fire, pillars of smoke, the sun turned to darkness and the moon to blood. So signs in the heavens, signs upon the earth, death, destruction, darkness, and the moon, blood. Now it's not clear, well at least it's not clear to me anyway, if these signs are to be understood literally or metaphorically. Sometimes... Language like that is used of tremendous upheavals in the world. Changes of governments and the convulsing of nations. But I think when something can be interpreted literally, if it makes right sense to do it, then then we should. Maybe it's both. In any case, maybe it's both. You'll remember that when Christ came into the world, there were also signs and wonders in heaven and in the earth. When the Spirit came, there were signs and wonders too. Think, for example, uh, when Christ was born, uh, there was a star in heaven. There was a, a visible manifestation which the astronomers in Babylon understood to be pointing towards the birth of the Messiah. We looked at that in Daniel. There were miracles upon the earth which the Lord performed. You will remember when Christ was crucified that the sun was darkened at midday. And you'll remember on the day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit came down in the visible form of fiery tongues resting on the heads of the apostles. And in the same way, there are signs here announcing his coming. Just as there were signs announcing the coming of the Spirit, so there will be signs before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Convulsions of nations, confusions, wonders in heaven and earth, blood, fire. smoke before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. The the day of the Lord had, had many types in the Bible. The flood, the destruction of water was a type of it. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire is a type of the coming of the Lord and the judgment of the world. The destruction of Jerusalem by the sword of Titus is a type of the end of the world and the destruction of it. The locusts themselves were a type of the coming of the day of the Lord and the destruction of it. Signs. Uh, And I think we can say that whenever God comes to bless, there are signs. And when he comes to judge, there are signs. By the way, these signs here highlight something for us. The... The external signs of the spirit 's advent were not meant to stay. The signs of speaking in tongues and uh, picking up serpents and uh, drinking poison and it not harming you and things like that these are not the evidence of the ongoing presence and work of the holy Spirit this is the this is this is the great um, mistake made by Pentecostals or by, by Charismatics. And uh, I think I, I can well understand why they have fallen into some of the mistakes that they've fallen into. It's, be, it's because of the dead nature of the Reformed churches, churches that have ceased to believe in a, in a practical reign and rule of the Holy Spirit. Churches that are so dead, they don't really believe in the power of the Spirit anymore. It's no wonder that perhaps they've been carried to excess in this way. But the evidence of the Spirit's work is not these signs. In fact, these signs were the evidence um, that Christ had been raised and that he is now Lord and Christ. And we would expect, really, that once the apostles had established the churches, once they had written scripture for us, once they themselves had died, with John the Apostle being the last to die, I believe before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, we don't expect fire and earthquake and wind. That's, that's not what I pray for. Is it what you pray for? When you pray for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we don't pray for Pentecost again. Pentecost was a once-for-all event. What we pray for is the still, small voice of the Spirit. The still small voice shouldn't convey something to you that is inaudible or something that lacks being spectacular. It performs its own miracle, the still small voice. It's the still small voice through the proclamation of the word that converted the 3,000 souls. It wasn't the fire. It wasn't the rushing mighty wind. It wasn't the tongues of fire or seeing the tongues of fire. Manifestations and signs never convert anybody. Was this not the great lesson that Elijah learned in the cave? When he he was praying for change in the nation, when he was praying for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, when he was praying that God would manifest himself in his day as he had manifested himself in Moses' day, when you came down on Sinai, When the mountain was on smoke, when there was visible fire, and you spoke audibly from heaven, can we not see and hear these things again? And then God sent fire, and he sent an earthquake, and he sent wind. But although God authored the fire, and authored the earthquake, and authored the wind, God was not in the fire, God was not in the quake. And God was not in the wind. And then Elijah heard the sound of a still small voice. And he wrapped his face in the mantle. Because it was full of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And that's what we pray for. Not tongues. Not picking up serpents. Not drinking poison and being unharmed. But the regenerating, quickening and livening power of the Holy Spirit, which really makes a difference. Mighty and powerful to save. Um, so that, of course, is what we're looking for. Now, that's a time marker here. Um, two time markers are close with this. Essentially bracketing the last days. You've got the outpouring of the Spirit beginning them, and you've got the day of the Lord Ending them. Now, I'll just leave you with this thought uh, to lead us where we'll be tonight. Because you'll notice that Joel, again, once he's, once he's put these two time markers down, the beginning and the end, he says in verse 32, It shall come to pass, let's just say, between the two time markers, between the coming of the Spirit and the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. We're living in the age of the Spirit. What effect should that have on us? May God help us to study that tonight by his grace. Uh, Let us pray. O Lord, we pray that uh, you would help us to take to heart the time in which we live. And uh, pray that we would honour the Holy Spirit in our speech and in our conduct. And honour him as the spirit of the risen, exalted Lord Jesus Christ whom we serve. And uh, ask that you would bless and that you would keep us and guide us. And uh, as we prayed for others earlier, we prayed too for our brother John Campbell and ask uh, that you would be with him as he goes under the surgeon's knife shortly by your grace. We pray that the great physician would oversee that operation and that all would be well with. And for any others too who may be awaiting procedures of that kind. Accept our prayers, we pray in the Redeemer's name. Amen. Now let's close uh, our worship by singing. In Psalm one hundred and thirty uh, two and verse thirteen. That's on page four two three. For God of Zion hath made choice. That that's not the God of Zion, but God has chosen Zion. God has uh, the God of, of Zion hath made choice. There in Zion he desires to dwell. This is my rest. Here still I'll stay, for I do like it well. Her food I'll greatly bless. Her poor with bread will satisfy. Her priests, and that, of course, is a reference to the ministers of the new covenant too. I'll clothe with health, with the message of salvation. Her saints, the saved people, shall shout forth joyfully. And there will I make David's horn to bud forth Pleasantly, this is the power of Christ manifested in and through the church. For him that mine anointed is, a lamp ordained to lie, As with a garment I will clothe with shame his enemies all. We'll see some of that in Joel 3 tonight. But yet the crown that he doth wear upon him flourish shall. These last four stanzas to God's praise. Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.